Well, Thanksgiving is definitely one of my favorite holidays of the year and favorite times of the year, and I pray that it's yours as well. We have so much to be thankful for. But even as we reflect on Thanksgiving, if we're honest with ourselves, there are some staples that make a Thanksgiving meal. There are some things I know that I've grown accustomed to seeing on Thanksgiving. And if I don't see it on Thanksgiving, the meal just doesn't feel the same. What's some of those staples? Turkey, right? A Thanksgiving without turkey doesn't quite feel like Thanksgiving. And you've got mac and cheese, got dressing, some type of potato, right? Potato salad or baked potato, sweet potato, right? We have all of these staples. Oh, I can't forget dressing, okay? These are Thanksgiving staples. You take one of these staples out of a meal, and it's really not the same. Well, there are some staples that make the Christian church, the evangelical church, the evangelical church. There are some marks that we have as the people of God that make us unique. And if you take those marks out, it doesn't quite feel the same. And it doesn't quite work the same. So what are some of the marks that make us unique as we gather together? One is preaching. We preach the Bible. Communion. Baptism. Fellowship. Right? And then a, another staple is church discipline. Church who? Come again? Church discipline is an original staple of the church. One church theologian said that the Christian church historically has been set aside by three things. One, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Two, taking communion often and remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, church discipline. Now, we're looking right now, we're kind of all around the table, and we're saying church discipline. That's not a staple. Because in most of our upbringings and in our uh, context, church discipline has been just straight up ignored. But in the early church, for the first group of Christians, that would have been a staple for believers, just like Turkey is for Thanksgiving. What is church discipline? Church discipline is a process of pursuing a person in love or removing a person from the church membership role in order to see that person restored to Christ. It is the process of pursuing a person who is in unrepentant sin, in love, or removing that person's membership with the hopes of seeing that person restored to Christ and to fellowship. This staple has been missing from many Christian churches and is missing from ours. And as a result, our witness to the world and our love for each other is hindered. 
So today I want to start and I want to, I want to teach on uh, the subject of church discipline by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue to march through the book of Corinthians. The church gone wild. Stand to your feet with your Bibles in your hand, and this is not a self-help book. Um, This is uh, not the words of man. This is the inspired word of God. It is the sufficient, inerrant, majestic, mighty, God-breathed word of our Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to march through verses 1 through 13. As we deal with this Christian staple that is often forgotten. The precious word of God reads, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a, father, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate this festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual and moral people, not at all meaning the sexual and moral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those who inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside, purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for your word because it is true and it is good. I thank you that we don't have to make up stuff and try to be creative on Sunday morning. I thank you, Father God, that we can just march through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and expect you to speak. I thank you that all of your word is profitable. All of it is profitable to the upbuilding of your body. I thank you for your people who have gathered here today to hear from you. I thank you, Father God, that you are building a church in Newburgh that is going to make a difference. That you are calling a people to yourself. I thank you, Father God, for faithful men who stand in this pulpit and who teach Bible study at this church and for them standing in a gap last week and doing such a marvelous job. I thank you for our Sunday school teachers who week after week come into this building faithfully preparing, prepared to teach their class. 
I thank you for your servants, Lord, who open up their word throughout the week, Lord, to hear from you. I thank you for that person who's coming here today, Lord, seeking salvation, wondering if you exist, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you are mighty to save. So, Father God, we pray that you would do it. We pray that you would break every chain. We pray, Father God, that you will remove past our religious hearts and our prideful hearts, our stony hearts, and you will give us a heart of the flesh. We pray against any spirit of envy or witchcraft or anger, anything that may cloud our hearts from hearing from you. We pray against rebellion in this place. I pray, Father God, that you will give me clarity and boldness and, and pastoral wisdom, Lord, and gentleness. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In the matchless name of the preeminent one, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I said, we're not really accustomed to the term church discipline, and we haven't really seen that practiced uh, in the contemporary African-American church, so to speak, um, in America, or congregation, if you don't like church. And as a result, the reputation and witness of Jesus is greatly hindered. Church discipline protects the reputation and name of Jesus. It protects the witness of believers in a community and amongst the nations. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is about to show us just why that is important. As he's talking to this young church that he planted some three to five years ago, and now he's away from that church, and he's right in this church because he has heard some, some troubling news. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says that Chloe's people <laughs> have reported some things that were going on in the church that, that really should not have been going on. And we see for the first four chapters, Paul is dealing with the issue of division. The church of Corinth is a very divided church. And now he's about to switch, and for the next two chapters, he's going to deal with the sexual issues of Corinth. And he starts off in chapter 5, verse 1, by pointing us to this truth in verse 1 through 6, the truth that we must expose and take a stand against unrepentant rebellion. In the first six verses, we're going to see that we, as the people of God, must expose and take a stand against unrepentant rebellion. And look how he starts off. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, he can stop right there because we can stop right there because we, we see the word actually, meaning that Paul is saying that this is not normal. Sexual sin in the church should not be normal. He uses the word immorality, which is a catch word. It's where we get the word pornography from. It's pornea. And that includes, that's a catch-all phrase that includes any inappropriate, 
sexual contact outside of the covenant of marriage. Sexual contact and our emotions and, and, and sexual investment is reserved for marriage. Sex could literally be called the marriage act. Because God intended for two people who have committed their lives to each other to pour themselves and to give themselves to each other in his presence in a way that glorifies him. But he says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 We see the Apostle Paul tells the church of Ephesus, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper of the saints. So it shouldn't even be named among us. But that is just half of the problem. There's a bigger problem. He goes on to say in verse 1, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So he says, not only is there sexual sin, but there is a a type of sexual sin that pagans, those who don't know Jesus, would even be offended by. And what is that sexual sin? The sexual sin is incest. For he says, a man has his father's wife. Now what we see here in this verse is a couple things. Number one, we see the people of God not only living like the world, but living worse than the world. And that's a sad thing. When as Christians, we live as if Jesus has never never paid the cost of redemption. As if our Lord doesn't own our bodies and doesn't own our life. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we live as people who haven't had our minds renewed and who haven't given our bodies to him as our our reasonable service or sacrifice, it is a sad thing because it is sinning. It is giving our bodies to people who don't deserve it and using our bodies in a way that does not glorify God. But man, it's even sadder. When we go past what the average person who doesn't know Jesus does. This man was in an incestuous relationship. The Bible says that he had his father's wife, or he's with his father's wife. Now, from reading this text, we can probably conclude that his father was, either dece- was probably deceased and that he was with his stepmother. So he went into a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 7 through 8, if you go home and read that, you'll see that God has a huge problem with incest, with us coming together with those who are nearest us in our family lineage and, and having sexual relationships or even marrying. In chapter 18 of Leviticus, verse 7 and 8, we see that God specifically mentions to Israel that they are not, to be in, uh, that a man is not to take his father's wife. That was punishable under the old covenant with death. 
Paul says, what is this that I'm hearing that you all are allowing this to take place? Verse number two, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul points out to him, he says, and you all are walking around arrogantly. Now remember, the first four chapters, that's what Paul is getting at. He is, he is reminding this church that as the people of God, we have not been called to be puffed up and to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. A, a fruit of the Spirit, a, a, a evidence of being born again is, is not pride and arrogance, but it's brokenness and humility. The Apostle Paul just told him in chapter 4, what do you have that you did not receive? How are you all walking around boasting about how gifted you are, boasting about which pastors you listen to and you don't listen to, and sin is reigning in this church? The true mark of spiritual maturity is not how much we know, it's not how much we go to church, it's us standing up against our own sin and standing up against the sin of others. Paul is exposing sin in this congregation, and he's saying, you guys think that you have it all together, and you're walking around arrogantly, and you look worse than the world. The only way someone can tell the difference between you and them is by the way you dress on Sunday. He says, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? One of the blessed attitudes, the be attitudes that Jesus, or attributes, it's a fruit of the Spirit, really, that Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, as he's gathered the, the people together and as he's preaching and he goes through uh, these blessed attitudes, one of those blessed attitudes was, was mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are broken over their own sinfulness and broken over the sinfulness of others. Blessed are those who have been regenerated, made alive in me, who have received a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, who is now sensitive to their sin and who runs to me in order to escape habitual sin. Paul is saying, you all should be weeping, you should be mourning, instead you are boasting. You should be on your face begging me and and asking me to take over this congregation and to revive this congregation in order that we'll reach the city. But you you walk around and you, you act as if none of this is taking place. We must expose and we must take a stand against unrepentant Sin, we must be people who mourn over our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know someone in this church, or you know someone who professes to be a believer in your family. You probably ate at Thanksgiving with them this week. And they talk about Jesus on one hand. They shout, oh, I should have bought a Honda, right? Speaking tongues, I should have bought a Honda, right? have the spiritual facade, but they are living in open rebellion against God. Maybe they're shacking up. Maybe they're sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe they're professing to be a homosexual while saying they love Jesus. Maybe they're just a compulsive liar. 
or thief. And we okay it. We okay it by our silence. And guess who's being exploited? Guess who is being cheapened? Guess who's not being cherished among the non-believers in our families and in our church? Jesus. Some of us, we know that there's members probably with the side, the church, this, this congregation, there's members sleeping around with each other and living with each other. But we will come into fellowship week after week without confronting it. And Paul is saying, no, we need to talk about this. Why? Because the church is a family. You hear me? When we come to know Jesus, we are adopted into his family, we become sons and daughters of God. We have the same rights to the Father that Jesus has to the Father. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are closer and more uh, uh, interconnected with each other than with our natural families. And when we gather together under this building that we call Forest Baptist Church, we gather together as the people of God, as one big family who is on mission to reach this community and world. And we must be able to have open, honest conversations about areas that we're struggling in. And we must be able together to pursue that person that is entangled in sin and living in open rebellion against God in order to bring them back to Jesus to protect the name of Jesus and to protect the witness of this church. And we as a people of God, we need to mourn. Because only then will we be comforted by the gospel of Jesus. Look at what he says. In fact, he, said, he asked the question, ought you not rather to mourn? That's a rhetorical question. He does it about 10 times in Corinth whenever he's really trying to make a point. James chapter 4, verse 6 shows us what that mourning looks like. Some, some of you need to mourn this morning. As you know that you are living in, a, in sin, you are uh, a, in a sexual relationship that you should not be whether that's full-blown sexual intercourse or whether that's flirting heavily and talking about what you could do and would do. Maybe you hadn't crossed that line. Or heavy petting or whatever it is. You ought to mourn because God is not pleased with it. We ought to mourn at the state of our hearts. Even if that's, especially, if that's, if that's lust and an addiction to pornography, whatever it is, God has called us to be sexually pure. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, the author in James, he's writing to uh, the church, and he is on that same subject about mourning. And look, look at what he says. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It's what it looks like to, to mourn. It's to humble yourself. It's to submit yourself. Resist the devil, and he will flee. That's repentance. 
That's a promise that when we submit ourselves fully to God, Romans chapter 8, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, the same power that raised him from the dead frees us from being slaves to sin. It says, resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. So he's saying, do what you need to do externally to be clean. But external changes mean nothing if internally you're not being changed. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God is calling for us to be a humble people by submitting to him, by saying, I don't run my life. My body is not my own. It belongs to the Lord. He has saved me and set me apart in order to empower me to live a pure life so that people will come to know him. We can't do that without humility. There is reigning sin in your life. It is because you are arrogant. Make all the excuses in the world. At the end of the day, arrogance breeds open rebellion. Because you think more about yourself than you do about Jesus. He continues. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So what does Paul Paul say? He says this person who is in open rebellion and open sin... He says they need to be removed from among the people of God. Now we see this and and right away we have a problem with that for a number of different reasons. Number one, this seems to be unloving. This seems to be unloving, right? We come to church in order to improve our spiritual walk and our spiritual life and to love each other. How is it loving for Paul to tell this man to, to be removed, tell this church to remove this man. But the thing we want to understand is that this Paul who is writing this chapter is the same Paul who writes 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The love chapter. It's in the same book. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. This is the same man. So he's not contradicting himself by saying, remove this man. By removing this man, this is an act of love. This is an act of love. He's loving that man's soul. He's loving the church. He's loving the name of Jesus. Discipline is love. So he's not saying remove this man in a harsh and mean way, but in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 2, as we confront someone on their sin, we, we do it with the spirit of gentleness. We do it not as pious police, but as broken-hearted believers. So we're not talking about policing everybody and getting in everybody's life and, 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 and coming to someone as a Pharisee. We're talking about coming to people as sinners who have been redeemed by Jesus and who know that if we're not careful, that can be us too. says this seems unloving. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 6. 
a passage about God disciplining believers, says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Having someone removed from fellowship is an act of us as the church being the hands and feet of God. We are being used by God to discipline this person, not because we hate them or abhor them, but because we love the name of Jesus, we love the church, and we love them. The Bible says that God disciplines those who love. A a good parent, a loving parent, is one who disciplines his or her child. A person who hates their child is a person who never disciplines their child. True love shows in the fact that we go and we pursue that person. So some of us say, well, it's unloving. Some of us, we have a problem with this because we, we fear abuse. We fear abuse. We say, well, who, uh, if we do this, we may make a mistake or we'll be kicking the wrong people out or we'll, we'll always be, be acting like this. And we fear this, this, this discipline being abused. And some of my older saints, maybe you grew up in a time when that happened. Maybe you grew up in a time where the church, if a young lady got pregnant out of wedlock, would bring her before the church and scorn her and make her apologize while the man who was probably in the congregation got to go free. That's not biblical discipline. That's not church discipline. That's sexism. And that's unwise discipline. Abuse will always be an issue because human beings will always be sinful. But just because something has the potential of being abused, it doesn't mean that it loses validity. A police officer can abuse his authority, but if you're in trouble and someone's breaking in, who are you going to call? For my non-NRA people in the congregation. I'm going to call my gun. That's what I'm going to call. Right? As we talk about biblical discipline, you'll see over the next few weeks that it's a very robust picture, that God doesn't give us part of it, of how it should look. He gives us a very full uh, picture of how discipline should be carried out. And if we as a church stick to what the Bible says about church discipline, then we won't have to fear abuse. But some of us, we are going to have a hard time with this because we we say, you know, everyone is a sinner and no one has the right to call someone else out on their sin because they're a sinner. And that can't be farther from the truth. Yes, everyone is a sinner and we sin, but the mark of a Christian is a Christian is a person who repents from their sin. There are very small and few circumstances where a genuine Christian will live in sin for a long amount of time and make an excuse for it. A person who has truly been redeemed by Jesus, they are not comfortable in their sin. They're restless. 
They, they know it's not right. They're, they're broken. They may be even confused. And that's when the 99 goes and, and, and the shepherds go and get the one who's left the 99. But when confronted like David in his sin, say, woe is me. Christians are marked by repentance. So when we talk about church discipline and even when we look at this passage, those who come under the discipline of the church or who need to be called out are those who are walking in outward, habitual, unrepentant and flagrant sin. Outward, meaning that it has come to surface and people can see the effects or know about it. Habitual. In most cases, this is a way of life. So this person hasn't just told one lie. This person is lying and a liar. Unrepentant, meaning that this person has been confronted on their sin and they refuse to turn from their sin to Jesus. Or in this case, what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is it was flagrant. It was so flagrant that Paul does not go through the process that Jesus lays out in Matthew chapter 18 of uh, if a person sins against you, as Matthew 18 says, you go to that person one-on-one. You confront that person on a sin. You wait some time. You go back to that person with two or three people if they still hadn't repented. You wait a little time. And then you go back and then you take the issue to the congregation or to the church. Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he doesn't do that. Because the sin is so flagrant and so grotesque that some action needs to be taken. Just like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, I believe, chapter 5, when they lied to the Holy Spirit and sinned and God right immediately came in and moved. Sometimes the sin is so flagrant and so public and so known to the community that we need to move straight to removal in order to protect the name of Jesus and make a statement. When a person comes under church discipline, the church is in essence saying this. We are not confident that this person is a believer. That's what we're saying. We we want to be confident, but we're not confident. The way that this person is responding to sin and living in sin habitually and cherishing their sin, we can't be confident that they really love Jesus and that they've been born again. And again, we all struggle, we all fall short, we all have issues that we're looking and areas that we're looking to grow into, but if we are habitually sinning and we can come to church Sunday after Sunday, week after week, and put on this facade and leave here and cherish that sin other than Christ, we should begin to question whether or not we've been redeemed. You should, right now, be feeling the way that you're feeling. Christians, the old has passed, the new has come. Christian is a person who has seen and experienced the resurrected Jesus. Christian is a person who has been won over by the free gift of salvation. Christian is a person who who understands that a a literal God-man died and suffered in our place 
buried our sins, past, present, and future in that tomb and rose with all power. And the power to give us victory, a Christian is a person who has been wooed by an eternal God. Not theoretical, it's not philosophical, it's not hypothetical, it's real. Sometimes we say, and we're just going to go up to verse 6 today, we'll pick up the rest next week. St. Augustine used to use in his writings an illustration of the church being a hospital. And I've heard that on a number of different occasions when talking to people about church discipline or confronting someone in sin. They say, well, the church is a hospital. And, and what they mean and what they're using that for is they're, they're saying that we shouldn't confront people in sin and we have no right to cast someone out of the church because it's a place that we come to get well. But what they don't understand is that analogy is working against that logic. No one goes to a hospital with the hopes of staying that way. We go to the hospital with the hope of being transformed, to get help, to become better. So yes, we all are wounded in some way. We all have wounds, whether that's a a father wound, a a mother wound, or or some great travesty that happened to us in our life. But when we come through these doors and when we are in community with people outside of these doors, we are believing that Jesus is transforming us and taking us from one degree of glory to another, not allowing us to sit and to meddle in our despair. We are not victims. We are victorious. We are not those who are slaves to ourself and our our sin nature. We are those who have been redeemed by a triune God. We believe in the power of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But a non-Christian is a person who believes in another trinity, a secular trinity, who loves the flesh, the world, and the pride of life. Some point, In in some situations, people have to be isolated in the hospital because their condition is so bad that it has now become contagious and harmful to everyone else. A quarantine has to take place. And Paul is saying a quarantine has to take place because this person is so rebellious and not loving Jesus that it can become contagious. So he says, remove them. Now, if you're having a problem with this message, it may be because you've never heard this before, and this is just shocking, or it may be because you have received a slimmed-down version of the gospel, which is not the gospel at all. John Liebman, in his book, Church Discipline, does a phenomenal job um, in, in writing on this subject. And in the preface, he asks the question, which gospel do you believe in? And he gives two types of gospel. And what he's talking about in his book, he's saying that if you have believed and put your faith in the first gospel, then you are going to really struggle when it comes to this Christian staple called church discipline. And this is the first gospel that many of our churches believe in and have accepted. It says, God is holy. We have all sinned separating us from God, but God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. 
Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. The gospel, therefore, calls all people to just believe. And unconditionally, loving God will take you as you are. It's a slimmed-down version of the gospel, which can hurt us. And this is the gospel that we often hear in popular culture. But a robust gospel makes demands as well as sets free. It says, God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God, but God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven and begin to follow the son as king and Lord. Anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life, a life which begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. But faith, which is true faith, which works, is never alone. The gospel, therefore, calls all people to repent and believe. A contra-conditionally loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve and then enable you by the power of the Spirit to become holy and obedient like his sons. By reconciling you to himself, God also reconciles you to his family, the church, and enables you as his people to represent together his own holy character and triune glory. First gospel says God saves. All you have to do is believe you accept it. The second true biblical robust gospel says, yes, God saves. By grace alone, through faith, but this God who saves enables us to live separate and separated from the girl, from the world. Not isolated, but separate. Separated. He enables us to live unique lives that make other people want to love Jesus. continue in this text. Picking up at verse number, verse number three. So he tells them to remove that person from among them. And then in verse three, he says, for though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul tells them to remove, and basically in verse 3 what he says is, even though I'm absent, you know how I'm voting. I'm not present, but you know my spirit. I'm being clear right here. My vote is, is that you remove this person. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. So he's telling them the next time you guys come together for a members meeting to discuss the welfare of the church in the name of the Lord Jesus and by my spirit or with my vote, with the power of the Lord Jesus, he's saying you need to make this happen soon and quick. And it needs to be done. And look at what he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He loads that term up in order to allow that force to be on them, that Jesus is our Lord. He's the ruler. 
that Jesus is our Messiah. He's the Christ, the anointed one. We need to do this for Jesus, the one who saved us, he said. We need to protect the name of Jesus. Then he goes on. For you are to deliver this man, I'm sorry, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, what does he mean with the power of our Lord Jesus in that verse? Um, how, how do we do that with the power of our Lord Jesus? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18 real quick. So he's saying, do this to represent Jesus. But then he says, do it in his power. What we want to understand is that the church has been given the authority of Jesus to make decisions about sin and unrepentance. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus lays out a robust way of dealing with outward, habitual, unrepentant sin. In verse 15 through 18, he lays that out, and we'll deal with that at some other time. But in verse 18, he says these peculiar words that we often take out of context and use to support prayer. But Jesus in his passage, he's not talking about merely just praying. He's talking about church discipline. Look at what he says. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst you. And what is Jesus saying in verse 18? Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's using the term of a key. He gives us an illustration of a key. He's saying whatever you unlock on earth will be unlocked in heaven, and whatever you lock on earth will be locked in heaven. And if two or three come together, gathered in my name, there I will be in a midst. What is he saying? He's saying that when a church gathers together, coming off verse 17, and they have decided that this unrepentant person needs to be disfellowshipped and needs to no longer be a part of this community, this Christian community, he's saying that he honors that decision in heaven. Jesus left the church with the keys necessary to do his business on earth. He says, I honor it. He says it could be a, a small gathering of, of believers and not a big, robust church. It could just be a few who have decided and, and who have worked with this person, those who have been involved in this issue, and who says we need to disfellowship from this person because they are living in sin. Jesus says I honor it because I've given you the keys to make those types of decisions. When we gather together as a body at a members meeting and there's someone in open rebellion, someone whose lifestyle says, I love myself more than Jesus, and after pursuing that person for a while, if, if, if we can, and, and loving on that person and, and sharing the gospel with that person and reminding them of what they have in Jesus, if they continue to harden their heart and we make a decision and we say we have to excommunicate you, then Jesus says, I honor that because you are protecting my name and my fame 
in Newburg and in the world. You are showing people that I'm not some weak, whimsy Santa Claus that makes everyone's dreams come true and that puts up with the crap that they poop on me. But I am a Lord, one who saves by grace and who transforms, but one who also calls his people to pursue holiness. He says, I honor that. John chapter 20, verse 21 through 23, says this. Jesus is getting ready to leave. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, Jesus is giving the apostles in the early church directions and keys. He's saying if someone comes and uh, you have called out their sin and they come and they seek repentance and you as a church say that this repentance is genuine, this is godly sorrow, they are broken and we can see the fruit. He says, I forgive them because you forgive. That's power. That's the church's responsibility. The church's call is to protect the name of Jesus. The church's call is to deal with people who say that they are Christians but whose lives are contrary to it. What would this community look like? What would this city look like if churches were grace-filled and love-filled and loved Jesus and were, were patient and kind and gentle and merciful? and loved each other, and, and was, was not filled with gossip and, and rage? What would it look like if those same churches, when they had to put their foot down, and, they, and when, when they had to make a decision about someone who was living in sin, made that decision for the glory of God to protect the name of Jesus? How many people, how many of your family members, how many of your friends would talk about Jesus differently? How many of them would say, man, this thing called Christianity is, is pretty unique, pretty cool. I hear that God saves you and he changes you and he, he renews you. But I also hear that if you fall, people will be there to pick you up and they're patient with you and they're kind with you. But, but I hear that if people contradict the message of Jesus in a flagrant way, that you all deal with that. That you say something about it. That you tell them straighten up and protect the name of Jesus or we're going to have to excommunicate you. Excommunicate. Sounds like a big word, but ex, to take out. Commune, not to fellowship with. Not to allow a person to have communion with you and to take the Lord's communion. How many people you know refuse to come to church because they say most of the people who say that they're church-going believers live the same way as they do. How many of you have ever been told that? I would come to church, I would follow Jesus, but to, but to be honest, it's all hypocrites at church. That's, and the reason why is because there's no accountability. Very little accountability. We come and we go as we choose. If someone brings out 
The fact that someone is living in open rebellion against God, they're judgmental, they're pharisaical, and they're, they're evil. They are those things. If they're trying to be a pious police, they are not those things if they are doing that in love because they genuinely want to see that person come to know Jesus. Got your Bibles open? Y'all ready? Y'all good? About to finish off these next few, few verses, amen? Watch four hours of football on Thanksgiving and can't even give me 50 minutes. Come on, what's, touch your neighbor and say, what's wrong with that? Huh? What's wrong? What's going on with that? Only time I'm going to see you this week anyway. Y'all so silly. Listen, we have the power of the Lord Jesus. When there are God-fearing elders and pastors who are lining up under the power of the Holy Spirit with 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are God-fearing servant leaders called deacons. And the Bible is being preached and proclaimed. We should expect church discipline to go forth and we should expect it to go forth in the right way. Look at this next phrase. If Paul offended you you by telling you that this person needs to be removed, he's really about to get under your skin with this next phrase. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does this mean? To deliver this person to Satan. Well, what this means is this. Those who say that they are Christians, and that they're blood-bought by the grace of God, they are progressively growing to look more like Jesus. They are marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And if they're young and immature, they're committed to becoming that way. And they are a part of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is mean that they are under the reign and rule of God. And they see Jesus as Lord. But those whose lives are contrary to that, they are a part of a, another realm, which is the kingdom of Satan. When a church comes together at a, a members meeting and they're talking about a scandal that's going on or a situation with a brother and sister in Christ, and they have done all they can, could to reconcile that person to, back to Christ and to the body, and that person hardens their heart, Paul says you deliver them over to Satan. What does that mean? That means you revolt their church membership. And you begin to treat that person, not evil and not mean, you treat them with love, but you treat them, in a way that says, I cannot affirm you as my brother or sister in Christ. And we are handing you over to that other realm 
and telling God to let Satan deal with it. Look at the term he uses. For the destruction of the flesh. Now that means, I think that has a, a double effect. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see Paul talking to believers, and he's saying that some of you are coming around and you're taking communion, and you're in unrepentant sin. And he says, as a result of you all not really searching your lives and your hearts and seeing if it's lining up with the gospel, many of you have fallen sick or even died. Your flesh has been affected. So when a church comes together and says, we're taking our blessing and our hand off of this person, we're saying, Satan, have your way. And that may mean Satan coming against that person's God allowing illness to fall on that person to humble them and bring them back to Jesus. But that also means something else. It means that we are simply taking our hand off of this person, our blessing off of this person. We're taking the keys that the Lord has given them and we're locking them out of membership because we want God to use Satan to destroy that carnal man, that flesh-filled man, to destroy their desire to live for themselves and not for the glory of God. He's saying, give them over to Satan and let Satan have his way with them. But what is he saying? He's saying, God humbled them. We've done all we can do. He's in your hands. Take your hedge of protection around him and allow things to come crashing down. And that's my prayer for some of you. We're not at a place where we can do member meetings or, or church discipline right now. I don't think that we're healthy enough. I think we're going in the right direction. But for the sake of your soul, for the witness of Jesus Christ, and for the sake of your family, I pray that Satan will have his way with you. So that you will no longer live a double, duplicitous, self-centered life that is damaging your witness amongst your family and your co-workers but that God would break you down to build you back up. Sometimes we need that. Point in my life where I needed that. And if it wasn't for the grace of God and, and godly men in my heart, I, I, I wouldn't eat that pretty, pretty regularly. He's saying, give him over to Satan, let him have his way. It's not the only time that Paul uses this type of language. Paul uses the same exact language in the New Testament. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. And there's so much to be said about this subject. The Bible isn't silent on it at all. We've been silent, but the Bible isn't silent. Look at what Paul says among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So these are two men who made shipwreck of the faith, and Paul said, you know what? 
I gave them over to Satan. Why? In order that they will learn not to be blasphemous. And we say again, Paul is harsh. Paul is this. Paul is that. No. Paul is an extension of Jesus. Jesus had the same mentality. If a person was not worshiping him, he excommunicated them. He said, don't follow me. The rich young ruler says, oh, I want to follow you. I want to do this. But his heart was all about his riches and his wealth. Jesus said, leave. Judas at the table right before they're about to take communion. Jesus says, no, don't take communion with me. You go and do what you have purposed in your heart to do. Jesus isn't this just this gentle, loving person who's walking around with a sheep and a child in his hand saying, peace be unto you. Jesus was a warrior who cared about the glory of God and who called Pharisees some really mean things as they lived hypocritical lives. The Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus that some of us love. We love the Sesame Street version of Jesus. We love the presidential version of Jesus. We love the political version of Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible was all about the glory of God, the holiness of God. Hallow be thy name. Set apart be your name. And how is Jesus and God's name set apart? It is set apart in the face of heathens, in the midst of heathens, by his people. By his people fearing him, by his people loving him, by his people cherishing him. By his people not living duplicitous, double lives. Why am I coming so hard? The reason I'm coming so hard is because I believe that we, the church, and we are in a dangerous place when we can join together week after week and wear masks and believe that we're the people of God. We need to see a bigger vision, a better vision, a vision that that brings joy and peace and restoration and healing, a vision that says you can be honest with where you are and who you are without fear of being judged, and, and you can receive the love of Christ from your brothers and sisters of Christ, and you can be pointed to the cross and reminded of his grace. You can be empowered by the Spirit to not live a double life. Some of us, we live a double life because we don't believe that Jesus transforms, and we don't believe the resurrected power of God. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same power that can resurrect you from whatever you're entangled in. What is depression to Jesus? What is alcohol to Jesus? What is pills to Jesus? What is cocaine to Jesus? What is a pornographic addiction to Jesus? We are talking about the one who suspends the world in a, in a, in a, in, in a universe. On an invisible axis who allows daisies to grow and, and who created giraffes by his voice, who, who knows animals that's yet to be discovered. We're talking about a God who for history, since the resurrection, has redeemed people that the world never thought was redeemable and used them to turn the world upside down. We're talking about a God who loves us so much that he allowed his very real eternal son to die for us.
He is able to set a people apart and make them so different than the world that he calls them light and the world darkness. He is able to raise up a people in this church, in this neighborhood, that will witness thousands coming to Jesus and being baptized right behind this screen. But that will never happen if we don't see the need for Jesus. If we think that we're okay with this facade. Is anybody willing to trust the Bible and not the God of culture? Is anyone willing to say, God, I'm broken, God, I'm lonely, but I know that you can satisfy me and that you are able to fulfill me more than this relationship that I'm in? Is anyone ready to give their hearts to God in a way that says, Lord, take all of me, not just part of me? Is anyone tired? of going through the motions. Paul said, I'm tired of seeing you guys go through the motions. Why are you settling for a life of slavery to Satan when you could be set free and at the same time be made slaves of God? I'm going to close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll pick this up next week. 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 2. I want to show you the power of God. So this is a man who's in a relationship that is incest and wrong. Pagans don't even get in relationships like this. Paul writes the Church of Corinth back. And most theologians say that this is probably the same man that Paul is about to refer to that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. But even if it's not, this is a testimony of what a church who believes in the Bible and who is willing to do the hard work of hard work can experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to the words of the uh, Apostle Paul as he writes back to the church. Verse 5. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So he's saying that this person that they excommunicated, that they kicked out the church, defellowshipped, okay? He's saying that it's enough. Stop treating him as, or handing him over to Satan because he's had enough. Look at verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This same man that was in 1 Corinthians probably came to to really give his life to Jesus. And Paul is saying, it seems that I've spent time with him. We know that he has truly repented. Forgive him, because we don't want him to go into excessive sorrow. God saves the worst of sinners. This was a man who was caught and incest, and Jesus saved him. I don't care who you are or what you're called in, what you're bound by, Jesus can save you. And he can forgive you. You're never too low for the reach of God. God's ears are not deaf that he cannot hear. Say, well, 
I'm too bad. You're not too bad. God's grace is sufficient. It's able. Goes on. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I may test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for the sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. He's saying Satan desires for you all to have a hard heart towards this man, but I'm telling you to forgive him. Accept him back into the family. We're a big family. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're, we're going to fall into sin, and, and we're going to know about each other's sin. But the fact of the matter is our sin is not what defines us. The blood of Jesus is what defines us. What defines us? This is a picture of what life can be like and life should be like should be us pursuing each other in love, forgiving each other, welcoming each other home like the father of the prodigal son with open arms, kissing each other on the neck saying, God forgives you and I forgive you. I will never bring that back up to, to you or to anyone else in order to harm you. That's a picture of the gospel. So this is what we're going to do from here on out. Um, as we look at the month of December, we are going to deal with this issue of uh, church discipline, what I like to call redemptive discipline. 